Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hawaii Kai Church, and thank you for joining us in worship. Uh, And I do want to say a few things before we get into our text. Uh, These past uh, couple of years have been very trying for a lot of us. Uh, Most of us have had some uh, difficult times, I'm sure. And this is not new news, but sometimes it can be that that length of time, uh, while something may initially seem heavy at first, we can actually get used to carrying a load where it feels uh, even normal and routine, and we do get used to it. And that load can sometimes uh, bring us down and break us down quite a bit. But that load can also uh, be used by God to reveal our own hearts to us and to the people around us, exposing what is so often hidden on the inside. It squeezes it out in ways that a couple of comfortable years will not. And there are things within each of our human hearts that are not all that pretty. I'm sure that there have been added stresses to many of your relationships, uh, divisions within many of your families, and even here at the church, uh, these things have been apparent as well. But by the grace of God, we've stayed together and we've pressed on, and and I think that this has ultimately been a growing process for a lot of us. I know that it has been for myself, and I'm thankful that we got to mature through this process together as a church family. And so we tried our best uh, as a church not to let Uh, non-primary issues move into the spotlight. We've tried to uh, make topics such as masking or vaccinations or governmental whatever. We tried our best uh, to speak into them here and there, but without making those things primary so that we can continue to do ministry as we have done it, trying to keep the main thing as the main thing and, and to continue our exposition through books of the Bible rather than letting tertiary matters take center stage where we didn't think that they belonged. This is really most of the reason why we didn't do a series on the Christian and government or the Bible and COVID or, or how the gospel informs your politics and whatnot. And maybe uh, that was a detriment at times that we didn't do that or that I didn't bring uh, these issues to the forefront more instead of just speaking on them in passing like we have done uh, when the text allowed for it. Perhaps uh, we should have done a series or two so that we could think biblically and very specifically about some of these issues as a main point of emphasis. Uh, Perhaps it was a detriment at time, I'm not sure. And I've seen good friends uh, take that route and do really well, and and I've seen others take that route and do really poorly. But we are uh, so thankful that for the most part, you all, our church family, you have not let any of these things become primary. And for the majority of our people, these things have not uh, shattered our church or damaged greatly our fellowship. And so we're very thankful for the grace of God during these past two years. And now as our state indoor mask mandate is lifted, I know for some of us it's late, almost too late. And and for others of us, this is too early. I know for some of us that COVID-related risks were taken very lightly even over a year ago, some more than that. And for others of us, it is still viewed as a very real risk today. Many are somewhere in the middle. And not everyone in our church family is in agreement But I would like to encourage you to view a mask as merely a mask and not anything more than that. It is a piece of fabric. It is a piece of cloth. And whether you wear one or not is a non-essential and non-primary issue. Wearing one does not define you as a person. And not wearing one does not define you as a person. Nor should we make conclusions about a person's heart or character, or value based upon a piece of fabric on their face or a piece of fabric missing from their face. I know the media has been training uh, us to judge each other by these kinds of rubrics, but we shouldn't follow that lead. 
And so I urge you to please uh, believe the best about those who may not make the same decision as you do. Please believe the best in love and not split her off into little cliques based upon the decisions that people make next Sunday. And there, there are many who think that one of the quickest ways to divide the church is to not have uh, homogeneity among us on opinions on things like mass. And therefore, to promote real unity, we must necessarily have unity of opinion or on even preferences on tertiary matters. I don't think that that is true. And I know a lot of churches got a lot bigger when they achieved this kind of homogeneity of opinion on the tertiary. But unity within the New Testament church is never built upon this kind of homogeneity of preference or culture or opinion. But true unity is achieved when even a diversity of opinions and backgrounds and peoples can still be the one family. That the dividing wall of hostility in Ephesians chapter 2 between people who were such opposites like the first century Jewish people and the Gentile people who would never eat at the same table or live in the same neighbors, that they could somehow be one for he, Jesus Christ himself, is our peace. And so I think that true unity is not a uniformity on such issues like COVID viewpoints, but true New Testament unity is of one family, even amongst a variety and differing viewpoints, because what we have in common is so much bigger and stronger than what we have in difference. And so next Sunday, again, while there may be uh, split opinions demonstrated in who decides to wear a mask and who decides not to, please do not give the uh, stink eye or assume character uh, for something as little as a personal preference. It is not a sin to take a mask off, and it is not a sin to put a mask on. But we can do both in a sinful matter. If our minds and our hearts choose to do so, we can make even a non-sin a sin if we do it with that kind of heart and give disproportionate importance to an issue that is not central at all. This issue is not even secondary. And so if you feel an opinion forming because of such a non-primary decision being made, please uh, resist the temptation to do so. And instead, I want to encourage you to love your brother and your sister. Now, I am sure that for so many of us here, this entire little announcement is utterly unnecessary. And I'm confident that for so many of us here, it is. But by way of reminder, uh, let us be prepared to love each other in such a way that honors and glorifies our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and does not separate nor divide the people that he has brought together by his own body and his shed blood. Having said that, would you now please take out your Bible, or Bible underneath the chair in front of you, and turn to the book of Luke. We are in Luke chapter 8 and verse 1 as we continue our study through the book of Luke. Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3 is our passage, and that passage can be found on page 864. Page 864, Luke chapter 8 and verse 1. Before we uh, look at our text, would you please join me in prayer? Uh, Father, we thank you so much for the grace, uh, your grace that sustains us and keeps us together and keeps our eyes focused upon Jesus Christ. We thank you, God, for our peace, uh, who is Jesus. Would you please bless our church family with a humble spirit and a great love for you and for each other as well. And as we turn to your word now, would you please show to us beautiful things in it? Would you magnify the glory of your son in our eyes? Uh, by the Holy Spirit, would you convict our hearts, especially those hearts who may not know you this morning? 
Would you convict us of the beauty of your son? It's in his name we pray. Amen. The last image that we were given in our last passage of Luke is of a notoriously sinful, uh, forgiven woman boldly coming to Jesus and weeping upon his dirty feet, washing them with her tears, drying them with her hair, and kissing those feet with her own lips and anointing them with the most valuable thing that she owned. The last image that we were given in our last passage of Luke is one of humble and worshipful love. And while much of the watching crowd there, and especially Simon the Pharisee, saw no beauty in this act of loving worship and no dignity in this woman's massive affection for her Savior, uh, Jesus does honor her. And he makes her exemplary to us as a picture of what forgiveness realized, what forgiveness breeds within the heart of those who feel their debt and know their sin to be massive. Great forgiveness produces great love for Jesus. And it is this kind of forgiveness of such a large debt which breeds a love that is like nothing else. And so Jesus gives to this nameless, notorious, forgiven woman a dignity that has lasted at this point for thousands of years. And it is in our text this morning that Jesus does the same for a group of other women making them exemplary as well and granting to them a dignity that has also lasted generations. But not before Luke highlights the main meat again of Jesus' current ministry. We read in verse 1. Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. We find Jesus here, yet again, he's preaching. And Jesus is preaching in the major cities, and he is also in the little villages because Jesus' primary ministry is a proclamation ministry. And Jesus proclaims the good news of the kingdom of God. Now, a lot of people like to think of Jesus as more of a healer than a teacher and more of a miracle worker than he is a proclaimer. That the real meat and potatoes of Jesus' ministry is making lepers clean and multiplying food and healing the sick, raising the dead, but but that couldn't be further from the truth. Luke chapter 4, verse 43 says this, when the people are clamoring all over Jesus, but he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. The meat and the potatoes of Jesus' ministry is a proclamation of the kingdom of God to as many people as possible. This is why he's always going from town to town. This is why we find Jesus always in the various synagogues teaching and preaching. And even when Jesus does do the miracles, the unclean demon cast out of the man, when did that occur? Luke 4, 31, and he was teaching on the Sabbath. Jesus' healings often occur on the pathways from this place to that place. The leper healed while Jesus is in that city to preach. The paralytic who had to be let down through the dug-up roof to be given the ability to walk. That happened when Jesus was preaching the kingdom of God in someone's house. Luke 5, 17, as he was teaching, the text says. The preaching of Jesus is primary. The healings of Jesus are secondary. The good news of the kingdom of God is the main thing. Everything else is not the main thing. And we have hit this point again and again in the book of Luke that the proclamation of the kingdom of God 
And the preaching of the good news of the gospel must be central to any valid New Testament ministry. It must. And we hit this time and time again because there are a variety of churches and ministries and movements that want to minimize a pulpit, to maximize something else, whether it be a charismatic healing ministry or a social justice this or that, or let's take care of the homeless and feed them even if we never do tell them the gospel message at all. There will always be ministries that want to minimize the proclamation of God's word and the preaching of the good news of the kingdom of God. They often want to minimize that to maximize something else that is a lot more popular than that or more effective at drawing the crowds than that. Something more current or more applicable to what the people are going through in their own day and age. But Jesus is not about any of that as being first and foremost. And with the first uh, century people of Israel, what they, what they thought was most applicable, what tickled their fancy, what they daydreamed of, what was their most current and most pressing need, what would be most obvious in our minds, the most obvious way for God to show his power and his love, what the first century people of Israel wanted most was for Rome to be overthrown and the Caesars to be brought down. We're conquered people. We need a revolution, Jesus. We need a nationalistic Israel resurrected in Rome's place to be a world power because the people felt that their greatest need was governmental overthrow, regime change, and therefore the Messiah that we would love most and the Messiah that we would listen to most would be this militant savior with a lot of power and bring the best Israel that the world has ever seen. But we as people... We don't often have an accurate perception of what it is that we really need most. And if Jesus were playing to the natural affections of these crowds, he could have preached this very message that they all wanted to hear. And that's what I'm going to do. And then flex some more power, walk on some more water, do some more shows, be a little bit less preachy, Jesus, and a little bit more flashy. And then Jesus wouldn't even have to die upon a cross at all which is a faint echo of the same temptation that Satan had given to Jesus in the wilderness. All the kingdoms of the world, yours, Jesus. Make these stones into bread for your appetite, Jesus. And Jesus could have brought these 12 easily for this kind of internship and had them flex with what the people wanted and not do what God had sent them to do and apostled them to do. But every preacher and teacher and every disciple of Jesus must make a decision, and every believer must make a choice to proclaim the kingdom of God or to proclaim an altogether different kind of kingdom. The people in the first century were consumed with this idea that our problem, our main problem is Rome, not sin. The issue is outside of us, not within us. And the greatest deliverance we need is national and with military might and not forgiveness and a new heart and transformation and eternal life. But again, we, as humanity, are, are not the best at assessing our true need. And our greatest need today is not a Caesar to be overthrown, or the government to become more Christianized, or the DOE to reject this or reject that. Our greatest need is not this kingdom, but the coming kingdom of God. John 18, 36, Jesus says this, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. This is not what Jesus is preaching. This world, which is full of the sick, 
the lame, the blind, the deaf, the dead, paralyzed, sin-sick, demon-possessed, lepers, boat-breaking storms, natural disasters, famines, wars, greed, dictators. These are all obvious reminders of how much sin has devastated all of creation and infected all of humanity. But a kingdom is coming where none of these will characterize the rule of God's eternal king. And this is called the good news of the kingdom of God because of the nature of his reign, but also it's good news because this kingdom is for sinners. And we get in not on our own merits because unholy and as sinful as we are, we would never be admitted as a citizen to this kind of kingdom. But our king deals with our real greatest need, not by preaching what the people's itchy ears want to hear, but our kingdom proclaims a better kingdom than Rome. Our king proclaims a better kingdom than Rome's. Our king secures that kingdom by going to the cross for sinners to pay our debt that our wickedness is owed. And Jesus willingly and lovingly dies in our place, the righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus deals with our greatest need by experiencing the death that we deserve and absorbing the wrath of God which we have earned by turning away from him and being raised from death to life on that third day. Jesus purchases this new life for us and simultaneously destroys both the power of sin and death so that we can possess and enjoy true unity and fellowship with God himself. This is why it is eternally good news that God somehow accepts the wicked into his coming perfect and eternal kingdom by the giving of his beloved son. Jesus Christ is our king and he is our savior. And we look forward with anticipation to his perfect reign, which is coming when he returns, but which he announces even in his first coming. This is the main thing. I mean, think about it. There is no more Roman Empire today. Big whoop-de-doo. It means absolutely nothing to us now. And Rome's overthrow meant very little for these apostles who were with Jesus in this moment. Because after his death and resurrection and ascension, what do they end up preaching and proclaiming? But the kingdom of God. And to prepare people everywhere to repent of their sin and to find forgiveness in Jesus and to come to him and to be made new and to be a citizen of a far greater and soon coming reign by the washing away of our iniquities and the giving to us of eternal life, which can only be found in Jesus Christ. And it would be what each of these men would die for. They would die for the same message and the same preaching and the same proclamation that Jesus himself would die for. And so we have in this opening verse, Jesus's unwavering diligence in preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. And it is exemplary for all of us as it was crucial for these 12 disciples who would go on to serve Ephesians 2.20 as a foundation of the church with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. We continue in verse 2 to look at some of the women who are part of Jesus' group of followers. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. 
You know, most um, first century historians worried about the credibility of the person that they were writing about would likely have ended this passage after verse 1. You know, Jesus, a powerful rabbi, his 12 very male disciples learning from him about proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. Because rabbis in the first century did not take in female students and did not accept women followers. One of the more famous quotes from the Talmud is a blessing that is recited in the morning. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, ruler of the universe, who has not created me a woman. That's actually written by a Jewish scholar. There are other blessings that are the same. Blessed are you who have not created me a heathen or a slave. And so you begin to see what kind of category women are in. And it's easy to find other quotes of other rabbis saying the same or worse in the first and second century. But Jesus does take to himself female followers. And Jesus is utterly unashamed of their past and ashamed of who they are. Jesus brings a dignity to women which is utterly countercultural at the time. And here it is that three women are listed by name from a variety of different backgrounds and coming from all walks of life. The first, Mary called Magdalene because she's from Magdala. And what is more grabbing to the eye is that she has had seven demons cast out of her. Her previous life had been characterized by the demonic, and not just one or two or even three, but seven. And you can only imagine the kinds of things that she has gone through that none of us ever have. You can only dream up the depths of evil that this kind of influence would push her into, and the kind of self-harm and suffering her former life had been like, and yet here it is, that as a result of Jesus' ministry, she becomes a noteworthy follower of Jesus Christ. We have after Mary, the wife of uh, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Harold's household manager, and we don't know specifically what her illnesses, infirmities, or if she had evil spirits within her, but notice where the good news of the kingdom of God has gone. The gospel has gone into another king's household and into Herod Antipas' own court. And this is the same Herod who was called out by John the Baptist for taking his brother's wife as his own. This is the same Herod who will have John the Baptist beheaded. If there is any household where it is tough to be a believer, it is this one right here. And yet we have Joanna, faithful and true and unashamedly a follower of Jesus himself, who takes her husband's paycheck from Herod and contributes it to gospel ministry by God's sovereign providence. He makes Herod support the Son of God whom he hates. Susanna, we know nothing about. She's not mentioned again in the New Testament. And therefore, we don't need to know anything more about her except that she had also been redeemed and forgiven and freed from her infirmities and given an entirely new life. And she spent the rest of that life following Jesus and ministering to him and to his people. These women and many like them were delivered from evil influences and infirmities having been freed from these things they cleave to Jesus. They're not free from these things to go live how they want to live, but they cling to Jesus with all their might. Is it any wonder that these women love Jesus and desire to follow him? And there's something about these three women that God wants to commemorate through Luke as being noteworthy for how much their lives were changed by Jesus, how much they followed him, and how much they supported and contributed to his ministry in all ways, and especially financially. And not only this, but the book of Luke uh, and, and other gospel accounts as well, God honors their faithfulness. I, I read this quote in Philip Ryken's commentary about women uh, being some of the first and most devoted disciples of Jesus. 
And he quotes a guy named Bergen who wrote, writes this, no woman is mentioned as speaking against our Lord in his life. Some of the male disciples spoke against Jesus. On the contrary, he was anointed by a woman for his burial. Women were the last at his grave and the first at his resurrection. To a woman, he first appeared when he rose again. Min woman ministered to his wants. Women bewailed and lamented him. And above all, by a woman, he was born. You know, sisters, I want uh, you to be encouraged by the very strong female faith and heartfelt love for Jesus within the pages of God's word and especially in the gospel accounts where only the women were really at the cross. Everyone else fled. The women were the first to the grave. Women were the initial witnesses of the resurrection. And while so many of the dudes were hiding and crying and betraying, I want to encourage you that God looks upon your faith and does take notice of it, and he is greatly honored by it. Some of you guys are in households that are like Herod's. Some of you guys have backgrounds that are like Mary's. That does not define who you are. What defines who you are is whose you are and who you follow and who you cling to, and Jesus does take notice of it. And so we have these women whose lives were changed, and they are active contributors to the proclamation of the good news of the kingdom of God. These women supported the ministry through all sorts of ways, but especially noted here is their financial support out of their own means. You know, Jesus' traveling ministry, as he went to these cities and these villages and this and this and there and there, would only be accomplished because many others were paying the bills. And the people whose lives had been transformed by the Son of God, the people whose lives have been changed by the gospel, they will give their hours and they will give their money to the proclamation of that same Son of God. This is a principle for us, and make no mistake, what we love, we spend towards always. And brothers and sisters, we know how much we truly love the cause of Christ and truly believe in this great commission by how much it is that we spend towards it, by what we give to his church and what we give to the proclamation of the kingdom of God. And one of the quickest ways we know we really appreciate the ministry of Jesus is by investing into the preaching of Jesus. And sometimes it can be very mundane and not exciting, like feeding 12 disciples and Jesus himself. Sometimes it's just pain to keep the lights on. Other times it can be more dramatic, like you read in your announcements, we're sending money to a local church in Ukraine so they can evacuate and house and feed people fleeing war zones, have a safe place to sleep. But more than that, that by bringing in these people, that they would hear about the kingdom of God, which can never be shaken and is secured by King Jesus himself. Sometimes it is we give to the exciting. Sometimes it is we give to the mundane. But what it is we give is an indicator of how much our hearts really value Jesus. And passages like this leave us to reflect upon the question, how much do you value the Christ who has saved you from evil and infirmity? How much have you given of yourself to him and to his church and to his cause? In the first century church, and Jesus' own preaching of the good news of the kingdom of God would have never moved forward without the ministry of women like these ones in this text. But church family, I also want you to notice that these women are not the primary preachers. And while Jesus is very countercultural in the first century by having women followers and empowering them and giving them a dignity, 
And Jesus is now countercultural today as well as Jesus still differentiates the roles of men and the roles of women. Jesus doesn't say a man can be a woman or a woman can be a man or a man should fill the woman's role or a woman should fill a man's role within the church or within the family. And so women are not the uh, primary preachers. And that's not because they weren't spiritual enough or learned enough or capable enough. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the women are very spiritual. We don't find the female followers of Christ making the same mistakes as the men, boasting like they do, falling like they do, denying Christ three times like one of them, betraying Jesus for some silver coins, or, or fighting about which one of them is the greatest, or these two brothers who are trying to call fire down from heaven to destroy a town. The men uh, who did become very faithful and loyal preachers and martyrs even, they were spiritually strong when all is said and done, but their deficiencies are highlighted more than the women's. And so the differing roles have nothing to do with spiritual maturity or theological know-how. But Jesus also does not choose six men and six women to be his disciples who would become apostles. And that is, again, not because of some kind of spiritual deficiency. And it's not because of the culture in ancient Palestine in the first century that he was so concerned about. Jesus was never concerned about appeasing the culture. Otherwise, he wouldn't have had female followers at all. But the Son of God is consistent in differentiating the roles of men from the roles of women. And this is the sole reason why we do not have women elders or women preachers. Not because we do not think that women can be as theologically advanced or as sharp or learned or as clear of communicators, but purely because the New Testament gives to us a differentiation of the roles of a man and a woman in the church and the roles of a man and a woman in the family. And these roles are designed to reflect our creator. And I want to caution us that one's spiritual significance should not be measured by who has the mic or the title of one's position, but our spiritual significance, for lack of a better word, is measured by our heart's devotion to and love for Jesus Christ in the very role that he has called each of us to fill. These roles are, are not because one gender is superior to the other or that one sex is more godly than the other, but only because we trust in his word and we trust in his design and we trust in his creative authority and in his purposes. And if you have any questions on what this means, we covered some of these in our study of 1 Timothy, which is online, but you can always come and talk to me uh, personally as well. Lastly, uh, as we leave our text, look at Jesus' condescension. This is a son of God. This is God himself who can turn stones into bread and multiply that bread to feed thousands. He can summon coins out of a fish's mouth. And yet it is that Jesus has to be supported financially so that he can eat and have a place to sleep and wake up to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. The humiliation of our Savior is such that he had no place to lay his head. He owned no property of his own. He had dirty feet frequently, and when hungry, somebody else had to feed him. Listen to Alexander McLaren on these verses. Jesus Christ was, in the broadest meaning of the word, a pauper. Not indeed with the sodden poverty that you see in our slums, but still in a very real sense of the word. He had not a thing that he could call his own. And when he came to the end of his life, there was nothing for his executioners to gamble for except his one possession, the seamless robe. 
He is hungry, and there's a fig tree by the roadside, and he comes expecting to get his breakfast off of that. He is tired, and he borrows a fishing boat to lie down and sleep in. He is thirsty, and he asks a woman of questionable character to give him a draught of water. He wants to preach a sermon about the bounds of ecclesiastical and civil society, and he says, bring me a penny, because he didn't have one. He had to be indebted to others for the beast of burden on which he made his modest entry into Jerusalem. Remember, get me a donkey from someone else who owns one. He had to be indebted for the winding sheet that wrapped him, for the spices that would embalm him, for the grave in which he lay. He was a pauper in the deepest sense of the word than his apostle when he said, having nothing and yet possessing all things, as poor and yet making many rich. The noblest life that was ever lived upon earth was the life of a poor man. Remember that pure desires... Holy aspirations, noble purposes, and a life peopled with all the refinement and charities that belong to the Spirit, and that is ever conscious of the closest presence of God and of the innate union with Him is possible under such conditions. You can love the Lord with all your heart and not have a lot of money. And so remember that the pauper Christ is, at least He is the perfect man. Let me suggest to you to look at the love love here that stoops to be served. Now, we have no record of Jesus ever uh, using his power to supply his own wants and desires, but allowing himself to be served by other people. And so remember, when you think about the salvation you have, his utter condescension and humiliation of the life on this earth. But also remember with that the opportunity that he does give to his followers to serve Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus, he loved not to serve himself, but he allowed himself to be served by the people that he loved because Jesus knew that they loved it too. It delighted him, and he was sure that it delighted them as well, not because he really needed it, but because it gave his people joy to serve and worship him in this way. It's like when the boys at my house give me little gifts, which are really being funded by the money I gave to them. And they make these cards with the paper I bought for them. And using the pens, I got delivered from Amazon to them. But that does not take anything away from my joy. It is my joy to see their joy in giving a gift to me because they love me even when I am the source of it. Jesus can proclaim the gospel all by himself from the heavens. He can send at any time a chorus of angels to declare the good news, but there is a different joy when his messengers are the ones whose lives have been changed most by his message. And when his ministry is fueled by those who appreciate him most, it is a kind of worship we want to give to Jesus and he wants to receive from us to make joy complete. Would you please pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for Jesus Christ. Even the the poverty that he endured, we, we can scarcely understand it because we can scarcely understand his place previous to it. Father, thank you for the love that stoops down this low. 
Thank you for the grace in Jesus Christ. Thank you for a steadfast perseverance in, in preaching the gospel and in proclaiming the kingdom, even when we don't always want to hear about it. Thank you for addressing the need that we are blind to, even when we're asking for other needs. And I pray, God, that you would, by your grace and by your mercy, and in an act of the power of the Holy Spirit, change our hearts more and more and lift our eyes more and more to see Jesus Christ for who he really is. And help us to love him with all our minds, all our hearts, with all our might, with all our soul. Help us to love him, God, more and more. And I pray that we would give uh, of ourselves to him and understand the joy that comes from doing so. We ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.